Hi everyone, this is Brandon Sparks, and here is a, another throwback episode of the Nation Podcast. We're coming up on our 300th episode of the podcast in February, and we're using January of this year to kind of promote some of our favorite episodes or favorite series that we've done within these past few years. The show has been going on for a while with breaks in between, but the main show that we, we currently have that has the uh, kind of evolution of it came about during COVID, during, during 2020. And we started looking at genre, a, a different genre every month and, and focusing on certain movies or directors from those genres that folk there in those genres. And this series that we're doing was one that I really wanted to do for a long time. And it was different because it wasn't a well-defined genre because most genres it's heist. It's there's heist or courtroom drama or rom-com there's tropes and formulas that are a part of it. And this genre is more based on thematic ideas or tone, atmosphere, things of that nature. Myst- I can't, we talk about kind of mysticism in a, in a weird way with a genre. And that's the Southern film genre. And it's a genre that I've always loved. It's being from the South. I always love movies from the South because a lot of them, they're really great, know how to use location. And it feels so different than what you're used to seeing in movies or television. Because the South is such a versatile location to use for your movies. You can have Texas, you can have Louisiana, you can have Alabama, you can have Florida, you can have Georgia. And those states can be a variety, you have a variety of different things happening in those states um, and all have a different kind of feel to them, even within the states. I mean, North Florida versus South Florida are both very different, as, as any Southerner will know. And parts of Georgia are different as well. Um, Alabama, Tennessee, there's so many, there's so much variety there. And with this series, we want to kind of look at how locations are used and how the the ideas of Southerners and the the decisions and thought process, all that stuff, how that kind of be, can become a part of the film genre. And the first one we talked about was To Kill a Mockingbird. It's one of my favorite films of all time. Being from Alabama, it's like you 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 read it in school. I was in the play version of it in high school, the kind of high school, college version that people do. Um, and so the lore of To Kill a Mockingbird has always been a big part of my life, really since high school. And it was good to kind of examine this movie uh, from kind of the lens that we do on the show and kind of look at how, how it kind of is a good starting point to analyze and and appreciate too the southern film genre and we'll talk about this episode too more kind of the, the the beginnings of this genre and more info just so you guys have a good starting point for you all and for this series we talked about a lot of different things from uh to kill mockingbird in one episode to count a hot tin roof for a different one talked about fried green tomatoes talked about the films of jeff nichols who i really love who did mud and midnight special loving shotgun stories who also did the bike riders, which hasn't come out yet. Um, hopefully soon. Some people have seen it, but it comes out this year. But yeah, I ho- we hope you enjoy the series because it's one of our favorites. And again, to kill a mockingbird. I even just saw recently, I think a year ago. I think a year ago, we I went to see the play version that Aaron Sorkin had done. He had re- kind of a reimagining of to kill a mockingbird. And I really enjoyed it. And they actually had Mary Badham, who plays Scout in this movie. Uh, as a young girl, she actually plays Mrs. DuBose as an old lady uh, in the play version. It was actually her theatrical debut. So it's fun kind of seeing the the full circle moment for her of originating at one character and then seeing playing a different character on a on in the same story decades later. But yeah, we hope you enjoy this episode. Also, go back and listen to the series on it because I think there's a lot of great stuff in there. And hopefully this will if you're a new listener, 
you can hopefully be inspired to go back and listen to some of our old episodes and see how we got to where we're at and how the show has evolved because certain things are different than what they were even just two years ago. So I hope you enjoy this throwback episode on To Kill a Mockingbird. Hi and welcome to episode of Cine Nation. My name is Brandon Sparks. And I'm Thomas Horton. And here on Cine Nation, we discuss film genres and the tropes and stories within them. And this month's genre might be a little bit of an unexpected one for some of you because it's a genre that we are essentially trying to define ourselves since it's not really listed on most genre or subgenre lists. So for September, we'll be discussing the genre we're calling Southern films or a Southern film. So, Thomas, let's dive into the genre a little bit before we talk about today's movie, because we need to kind of craft this genre out since we're going to be covering it for the rest of the month. And so what do you think of when you think of Southern films? The the main thing that I think of is is Southern Gothic as a yeah. as like a subgenre, which is which is kind of a literary subgenre that became a film subgenre. But but something that from southern gothic that kind of permeates what i think of as a southern film is this idea of like things things left unsaid because Mm. southern culture is this whole kind of like putting on a mask of whether it's like politeness or being proper or fitting in or and and so uh, that that's something that really started with the southern gothic genre but has continued into like southern comedies and southern dramas is this idea of like um like a lot of things under the surface and with southern gothic it's like real dark things under the surface whereas you know with with more like southern comedies like something like fried green tomatoes um you know you take something that's that is still dark but like treat it comedically that it's under the surface or it can even be something like um you know like younger kids feeling like they don't fit in but but that's something that that really sticks out to me through a lot of the stuff when when I draw like the southern genre immediately to mind it's that influence of the southern gothic literary genre on yeah. the 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 way like characters are portrayed and like stories are told within the the film genre of it all yeah and, and it's good that you bring up kind of literature because that, I mean that's going to be a, a very important role in today's movie to kill a mockingbird Literature, I think, had a real big influence on the Southern film, I think, when Hollywood was first starting out. There was a few examples. I mean, it's like Birth of a Nation is technically a Southern film, but it is a very flawed and problematic Southern film. But it does bring up issues that I think will permeate kind of the genre of these racial racial tensions uh, and the history of race within the American South and what that kind of, the lasting effects of that. I think like you said, it's like this, this kind of everything kind of lingers on and, and it's the, the secrets left untold or the, the, the previous sins, the previous generations is kind of what continues on in that kind of genre in a way. Um, mm-hmm. And going off too, it's like, it's the idea of repression. I think either with, with racial tensions and repressions, but also sexual repression. I mean, that's going to be a very big thing in several of the movies we talk about. I don't know, next week's movie, I think pretty much for sure. Mm-hmm. Um, like sexual oppression is very a, a big thing. I, I, an example I pick up uh, that I talk about is not a Southern film, but it's a movie called The Innocence, um, which is the kind of the uh, uh, adaptation of The Turn of the Screw. Mm-hmm. Uh, most people know it now. It's like it was the haunt, the haunting season two, haunting of... Uh, was, uh, 
Bly or Blith House or Bly House? Bly Manor. Bly Manor, right. thank you. Um, but like the Innocence was like it was co-written by Truman Capote. And there's like so much like sexual repression in that movie. You're like, oh, that's like, even though it takes place, I think, in like England or wherever, that's a very southern gothic thing that he's bringing into this like gothic horror is this idea of sexual repression in this society and how society looks upon it. Um, I also think too, going with that Southern Gothic kind of stuff, but I think there's also the sense of, of mysticism in a lot of Southern films, either earlier or later ones that there's kind of this just like, even if like the story doesn't have like a supernatural element, there's something like it's a mystical type movie. It's, I mean, I think with today, with To Kill a Mockingbird, it's not one that you might think of as that, but I think there are elements of this like fairy tale like story or mysticism that's kind of around in the tone of the film. Uh, another movie I think does that very well is The Night of the Hunter with Robert Mitchum that Charles Lawton directed. Mm -hmm. like, there's a lot of in this earlier stuff, I think they're playing with it more. Um, I don't know if we have it as much later i think someone like jeff nichols that we'll talk about later this month kind of brings some of that in into back into the ether with like say midnight special or mm -hmm. even kind of take shelter um i mean even something like forrest gump played with it in more yeah. of a lighter lighter tone, tone yeah. but um, this idea of him kind of living in an, an enchanted life kind of because he is this this, this southern simple man southern yeah. man yeah yeah um yeah there's a lot of just there's a lot of things that are going to be coming popping up um this this month with the with with the things like sexual repre sexual repression with the the lingering effects of racial tension and we won't really talk about this month but the idea that the civil war kind of lingers on in the south in some form or fashion uh, as we know today um and then you have the mysticism so what are some other films that you think of when you think that kind of best represent the South that we might not be talking about this month. Definitely steel Magnolias, uh, is one of the big ones. Yeah. Um, also going along with your kind of mysticism, uh, big fish is one. Yeah. I thought about bringing up this month for us yeah. to watch, but I, I didn't feel like doing that to myself because I cry like a baby every time <laughs> I watch that movie. Um, but that, that is one. Yeah. And that one kind of like, kind of like Forrest Gump. I think that one, explores this kind of southern thing of like tall tales you know um and and the way we like tell stories and like yes that's a weave thing. stories in the south big chill is is one that's a favorite of mine it's more like set in the south i guess it is it is kind of about kind of breaking through those those kind of southern social norms it's about like mm -hmm. rediscovering your candidness with your friend group after after years apart but that's that's more one kind of visually that that is southern to me yeah um midnight in the garden of good and evil is one that when i was growing up everyone always kind of referenced everyone had that little you go to home depot and buy that little statue and um yeah. everyone had it like in their gardens the savannah girl yeah. yeah the thing about the south the south as an american region is very diverse and i think with the way media can sometimes portray us in the modern day uh that is kind of looked over in some way that there is a diversity within the south there are rural areas there are urban areas like city city landscapes it's like when you think of something like say ex example it's not really might not fit into a southern film per se but it is a it is takes place in the south that does have qualities of the south 
something like Baby Driver. That's a very Atlanta movie mm-hmm. when you watch that. But you don't think of that as a Southern movie in some way. And then you have something like My Cousin Vane that takes it in a different way of this fish out of water in the South and how the how the cultures can clash. Yeah, well, and that just gets you. And I mean, obviously, we're talking about it today, but the, that, that gets you started on a whole other subgenre, which is like the Southern legal uh, movie, which yeah. um, Time to Kill is one that is, I feel like is like critically not super well received but everyone yeah. i know in the south like really likes that well, movie that okay so that's another thing too i didn't plan on myself like there is something about like movies that just southerners like does that make sense it's mm-hmm. like and i think it's like a time to kill i think he, i'll bring up even forrest gump for example it's like forrest gump i thought like everyone loved maybe mm-hmm. because i'm from alabama and that's why i kind of thought that and when i moved to california and it was people who like actively hate that film and i was like you can hate this movie because like i make the joke is that when 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 you're born in alabama you get a dvd copy of forrest gump when you come out of the womb like that's just kind of what it is like everyone has multiple copies of forrest gump in alabama uh that was always a go-to like christmas like dirty santa gift or whatever was like forrest gump um so like there are certain movies that like i think because it's the cultural acts aspect is that people gravitate gravitate towards it more um mm-hmm. i think even we're talking about to kill a mockingbird today and when when i went and like kind of i read a bunch of reviews on it and it was interesting of how a lot of the people that were like that would sometimes criticize it would talk about how it's not the south as they were writing from their new york apartments uh <laughs> which i'm like okay so it's this idea that like certain people can assume what something might be and i don't know if they were wrong or right i wasn't around during that time but it's interesting to see there's kind of like, well, this like these these are caricatures. These don't make sense. Uh, or it's just oh, very over the top. And I was like, well, this kind of existed. Like, let's not pretend it didn't. Um, like the racism was very pro- was very big in this in these time periods. Um, and then, too, when you, you say the subgenre of stuff, it's like with the Southern southern legal genre with that's the all all the john grisham stuff like mm-hmm. the time to kill like the firm like the rainmaker um and then you can even the thing is you could even break it up more by like states in a way it's like you had we talked about last year with the texas movies that's almost a a separate genre in itself or you could talk about we talked about florida noir or F- florida glare as they might say in like the literature terms of the kind of like that shady like sketchy kind of genre of crime um and then you can even like break it into like louisiana or new orleans movies that's even kind of a mm-hmm. separate thing itself or even like west virginia kentucky mountain people that like it's a, there's all these different things that you can bring up by location which is not really uh uh a part of any other genre as much where you can like break you can break it down into subgenres just based on location alone which is i think kind of what makes this genre again so diverse and it's um and it's makeup of mm-hmm. what could be um so yeah so that and so yeah so that's kind of the things that we're going to be discussing a lot this month with the films we're talking about and with today i think today's movie covers a lot of those aspects of of uh the southern film so today's movie we're talking about the 1962 film to kill a mockingbird 
And the film is based on the famous 1960 novel written by Alabama writer Harper Lee. And the film is about Scout or Jean Louise Finch, also known as Scout, a young tomboy growing up in a Depression era Alabama, Makeham, Alabama in like 1932. And she spends most of her time playing with her older brother Jim and her their friend Dill, who is visiting every summer. And while the first half of the film is mostly a coming of age tale of these three friends and kind of for most of the movie, there is this underlying narrative of the film that deals with Jim and Scout's father, Atticus Finch, a lawyer who is defending a, a young black man who is on trial after being accused of, of raping a, a white woman in the kind of the poor area of town. Um, and so this film stars Gregory Peck as Atticus Finch. And at this point, Peck was a highly popular actor, both with the critics and audiences. He had already received, I didn't realize this, four Oscar nominations at this point in his career. Wow. And just recently starred in The Guns of the Navarone and Cape Fear before To Kill a Mockingbird was released. Cape Fear and To Kill a Mockingbird came out the same year, by the way. It's like a really big year for Peck. Mm -hmm. um, the rest of the film stars mostly lesser known actresses, actors or actresses or complete unknowns like the child actors of Mary Badham and Philip Alford, who starred as Scout and Jim. Uh, the film was directed by Robert Mulligan, who had only directed about four movies at this point, including his 1957 debut Fear Strikes Out, which we've talked about briefly on the show before because it was the mm -hmm. first collaboration with his producing partner, Alan J. Pakula. Uh, a favorite of this show because we did an episode on him as a director, but he's going to be a very important player in today's movie. And the film was also written by famed American playwright Horton Foote, and the score was composed by the legendary Elmore Bernstein, who I think we talked about on Sweet Smell Success episode. He's come up, he's popped up a lot mm -hmm. these past few months. So, so I have a history of this movie, but I'm, I'm going to ask you, Thomas, like what what's kind of your history with To Kill a Mockingbird? Yeah, this one feels kind of like like you were saying with um, with Forrest Gump. Like I don't really remember a time when I wasn't familiar with To Kill a Mockingbird as a yeah. kid. Yeah. Um, like we had it on VHS when it came out on DVD. We got it on DVD. We read it in school at a certain point. I think I had already read it be before. Like I think I it was when my sister was assigned it in school mm -hmm. i like read it right after her because i had seen the movie before so i was like i'm gonna read the book <laughs> and so then by the time i was that kid by the time it like came back up in school for me i was like i have already read it um <laughs> but yeah i think it's it's one that like i yeah i am just thinking right now maybe it's not as commonly taught for everyone in the, the yeah. country but but uh it is definitely like the go-to like as you're starting to you know like fifth grade like it's it was that, ninth like, grade. it was it was ninth grade for me oh okay <laughs> it was freshman well, year high school <laughs> man that sums about uh, they went high school uh, public schools i don't know <laughs> but it, it feels like that like uh because it is this kind of like coming of age story and it feels like something you just give to southern kids and you're like here's here's how to be a human being like this yeah. is Atticus Finch's lessons to like, we're all just taught that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it is very much like this. Uh, it's also one of those books you feel like when you get to a certain age where it's dealing with complexities that you might not deal with in your regular life. And like, mm -hmm. and that's why it's kind of like brought up at that point. Yeah. I mean, being from Alabama, it's like, that's, it's a big part of the culture, Alabama being kind of like, and the South, of the, of the South being this kind of place that, uh, that 
uh, harbors authors or, or uh, uh, is is a is a breeding ground for uh, famous literary icons like Harper Lee, like Truman Capote, like William Faulkner. Um, that that's kind of a a thing that happens, but Alabama specifically with Lee and Capote and other writers as well. Um, so because that's like to kill a mockingbird, it's like, it's always, it's, I was in the play for God's sakes in high school. I was in the play <laughs> for to kill a mockingbird, a sheriff hectate. Um, and, and so, yeah, it's like, it's kind of like, every, like I talked to so many English teachers in Alabama who are like, Oh, this is my favorite book. Um, and I think when looking at to kill a mockingbird, from the perspective of people who are not from the South, it's, it's not as, I mean, we'll get into this later with kind of the aftermath of the movie of like list reading some of the critics and how like some of the main critics were not really fans of this movie in like a retrospective. Um, but in the South, it's still very beloved. And there's the, every year there's kind of always controversy around the novel because of its um, use of certain language. And, and it's all, there's always kind of this, being banned from certain schools or kind of being fought by kind of literary um, historians or authors who are fighting to keep it in schools. Cause I feel like it's, you don't want to ignore certain things that are part of the past. And I think that's that again, going with this kind of Southern thing is that Southerners can either be very uh, uh, living in the past to some extent and creating a narrative around the past, which is very relevant today. Um, or they want to ignore completely is the other thing yeah. so there's kind of these there's a lot of different like facets of that um well, sometimes the version of the past you want to live in is a version that was just created in the 1960s as a romanticized version of the past in order to justify uh, uh rallying against the civil rights movement but that's that's all i'll say about that true statements were never made uh <laughs> true statements were never made uh so yeah it's so but yeah being from alabama there is there in the south there is a bias towards this film a little bit and and we'll try to break into some critical stuff with it um, and kind of show every side of this of this movie and how it's taken. Um, so w- I've watched it many times over the years. I've read the book. Re- I mean, the book is uh, it is one of my favorite books. And it might be because I'm from Alabama, but I really love kind of Lee's Harper Lee's writing style. Um, I mean, I, I like I said I I read Ghost of the Watchmen, the 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 controversial sequel of the the uh, the book um and that that'll come a little bit into play a little bit early or in this episode a little bit so Uh, what were your kind of initial thoughts when revisiting this movie this time yeah i mean it's it's one that that i'm not as you know some some of these times when we've like revisited movies i haven't seen since since i was a kid it's like oh my gosh seeing it all over again for the first time but this is one i've kept up with you know if it's on i don't know i don't remember the last time i sat down and watched it end to end but if it's on like turner classic movies i'll turn it on especially to see you know any of the courtroom scenes yeah and um so yeah it just kind of felt like a nice nice little refresher but um but definitely definitely not one of those experiences like i have had on this podcast where i'm just like oh my gosh this is completely different perspective than i than i had on this in the past yeah it's one that like i i revisit every like few years like every two years or so uh i come back to the film as it's kind of like just because of the way it's made i i think it's a really great piece of filmmaking and so it's mm-hmm. it's kind of a, a little bit of uh, i don't know if it's like comfort movie but it's one of those easy movies to kind of put on and and watch because you know kind of everything about it 
Um, so yeah, so I've seen it many times. You've seen it many times. This will be interesting to kind of discuss it from a trying to be more critical way of thinking with this film. Um, but let's get into how kind of how this movie got into production because we, we talk about how this movie got made. So how it got into production because that's kind of a a big thing. Mm-hmm. So we before we talk about this film, we we have to talk about I feel Harper Lee and her novel. And this episode is a sneaky way for me to discuss Harper Lee as a whole. So get ready. So Nail Harper Lee was born on April 28, 1926 in Monroeville, Alabama to Amasa Coleman Lee and Francis Cunningham, whose main name was uh, Finch. So Cunningham and Finch, two names that are used in the the book and movie. Nail was, Nail was the youngest of four children. Her father, who went by AC, was a former newspaper editor, businessman, and later lawyer. He was also a descendant of Robert E. Lee. Uh, so Nell is technically part of the, show by Nell, uh, Nell is technically part of the kind of Lee family. I don't know what, like how they're related, but the Lee family being, Robert Lee is kind of the big one, but the Lee family is like prominent within the American, yeah, the, the say, history of America since the 1600s. He was from Virginia, right? That's, yeah, we're, I think very distant branches probably. Yeah. And, and they, and they grew up poor in Alabama. So it wasn't like, yeah, it wasn't like it was, they were part of a rich <laughs> Lee family, but like Richard Lee was like the guy who was a big part in the revolutionary or uh, the, uh, second continental Congress that did the declaration of independence. I think he proposed the, the Virginia plan, I believe is what we call him. Sorry for my history. Hatred if, if, who's listening, maybe. Um, but that was kind of what brought that, that led to the declaration of independence and all that and kind of declaring, out of the union or out of, out of uh, England. Anyway, while growing up, uh, because Nell's sisters were older than her, she was closer to her brother because they were able to play with one another in the neighborhood. And he would later become the inspiration for Jim and the novel. The two friends would become, become, uh, uh, pals with a young boy that would visit Monroeville during the summers. And that would be, that would be Truman Capote who later became famous for writing such novels or novellas as, uh, Breakfast at Tiffany's, but also novels like In Cold Blood, um, which Harper Lee was a part of in terms of the researching aspect. As Lee got older, she would become greatly interested in literature, and she would attend the all-female college, Huntington College in Montgomery, Alabama, for a year before transferring to the University of Alabama in Tuscaloosa, where she would study law, roll tide. But much to AC's (laughs) disappointment, Lee would drop out with only one semester left before obtaining her degree. She would then move in 1949 to New York City, with hopes of becoming a writer. She worked at a bookstore and then later as an airline reservation agent uh, to help people book flights. Uh, she, would have, she would have a few stories published, but she didn't have enough time to really work on a novel. And during Christmas time of 1956, a couple that were friends with Lee, who were very impressed with her writing, would give her a year's worth of wages as a Christmas gift with a note that said, you have one year off from your job to write ever you please. Merry Christmas. That was Christmas time of 1956. In the spring mm-hmm. of 1957, Lee would deliver a manuscript to her agent titled Go Set a Watchman, which, as I said, would become famous in 2015 when it was released as a To Kill a Mockingbird sequel. But it was a first draft of To Kill a Mockingbird, basically. And this draft focused on Scout as a grown woman, Jean Louise, returning home to Maycomb and realizing how much the town and people had changed while also still staying the same in some way. Um, her editor told her that the strengths of the manuscript were the flashbacks of the young kids and that she could re- she should reconsider writing more of a children's novel instead. And that novel would eventually become To Kill a Mockingbird, which was published on July 11th, 1960. 
and it would become an immediate bestseller and would later win the Pulitzer Prize for fiction. And can you guess the amount of copies that were made for that book's first run, Thomas? Um, a thousand? Five thousand. Okay. Um, and in 19, it's still a small amount. In 1964, I bet those things cost a lot if you can find them. Um, in 1964, Lee would say about the book's success that I never expected any sort of success with Mockingbird. I was hoping for a quick and merciful death at the hands of the reviewers, but at the same time, I sort of hoped for someone would, that, that someone would like it enough to give me encouragement, public encouragement. I hoped for a little, as I said, but I got rather a lot, and in some ways, this was just as about as frightening as the quick, merciful death I had expected. So, it's no surprise that Hollywood would come knocking to adapt the novel into a film, but it didn't happen the way you might think. Most of the time, motion picture rights are sold before the book is even published or right after it. Uh, and especially because it was such a bestseller, you would think that they would be knocking down the door. However, Kill Mockingbird set atop the New York Times bestseller list for six weeks All right. before the producer, director team of Alan J. Pakula and Robert Mulligan acquired the rights. The reason why no one, no one had gotten the rights yet was because the major studios had zero interest in adapting the novel. It seems they didn't think it would be successful because the film had no action, no romance, and the villain does not get a big comeuppance in the climax of the novel. Yeah. Well, and it's, you know, it's told through the eyes of a child, but as an adult story, like yeah. that's, that's not really something people were doing at the time. So we've talked about Bakula previously on the show. Uh, so that means we've talked a little bit about the Bakula Mulligan duo. Uh, but at this point, this duo were still rather young. Mulligan's directorial debut, as we said, was Fear Strikes Out, which was released in 1957. So he'd only been working for a few years as a director. And Pakula's only producing credit at that time was Fear Strikes Out. Uh, so he's only produced one movie, and he just they just optioned the rights to like the biggest novel in America at this point, which is kind of insane. That would never happen. No, you would. Not, I don't think you would, you would ever see. It that would be optioned before it even hit the market today. Yeah, because because like what I mean, you know this too. When we work in development, like I, we would get books that were just like I guess I guess the galleys or whatever, which is like the printed. It's just like printed on paper, like yeah, just manuscripts. Like the, it's on, the, I mean, manuscripts I, basically. Like two years ago, I saw a book come out, and I was like, "Wait a second, I." I read that. And I mean, I, it was another like three <laughs> years before that, that I was interning at a development company. So basically, so Pakula and Mulligan after, because they were so kind of young and inexperienced, or they have enough credits, they realized they needed to find a big name to portray the role of Atticus Finch in order to get the film made. Now they offered the role to a few people, which we'll talk about a little bit later in often universe cast, uh, before contacting Gregory Peck about taking the lead role after being offered the part Peck sat down to read the book and, and he ended up reading it in one sitting he immediately called Mulligan and Pakula saying he would gladly accept the role if they wanted him with Peck on board his production company Brentwood Productions was able to gain the financing for the film and with that and with that kind of the whole package deal Universal decided to distribute the film itself once there was money the filmmakers attached writer, uh, writer Horton Foote to write the film adaptation of Lee's best-selling novel. Foote, who was a Texas writer, had wrote had written mostly within the theater world. From 1940 to 1960, Foote had written a total of 18 plays, which many of which were kind of like one-act plays, it seems. Um, and in the 1950s, he kind of began writing some television, but it was mainly like the one-off episodes that were basically like plays, like the the play, like theater playhouse type shows they would do. Um, 
but before Mockingbird, Foote had only written one screenplay, and that was the 1955 uh, noir titled Storm Fear. And Foote, I think, was actually very uh, hesitant to do the movie because he didn't think he could he'd do the book justice. But he is kind of this famed screenwriter for kind of writing these very quiet or very subtle and kind of small movies. Actress Tess Harper, who later starred in the film Tender Mercies, which was an original screenplay by Foote, mm -hmm. described him as America's Chekhov. If he didn't study the Russians, he is re reincarnation of them. He is a quiet man who writes quiet people. So with Foot on board, Mulligan and Pakula began rounding out the team they needed to produce the movie. They hired Elmer Bernstein to the score because he had done Fear Strikes Out for them a few years before. And they also hired Russell Harlan as a cinematographer who had shot such classics as The Thing from Another World, Red River, Witness of the Prosecution, and Rio Bravo. So a great DP mm -hmm. to do this movie. Uh, but it seems one of the most difficult parts of playing the film was finding the child actors. While John Migna, who played Dill, was an actor out of New York and already appeared on a few Broadway plays and musicals, mm. the filmmakers wanted to cast real Southerners for the roles of Scout and Jim. They held auditions in Birmingham, Alabama, where they found Mary Badham and Philip Alford Alford had been in a few local theater productions when the director of the company called Alford's mom and asked if he would be interested in auditioning for the film. Alford refused to do so until he was promised that he could miss a half day of school for it. <laughs> and his, his mother agreed. So that's how the long journey of To Kill a Mockingbird got into production. So let's dive into favorite scenes here. Uh, Thomas, what is a, a favorite scene of yours from this movie? I... I just love the intro to to this movie. See, same. <laughs> That's the first thing on my list too. The opening title design is amazing. It's striking. It's beautiful. Mm -hmm. the, the score is beautiful by Elmer Bernstein. It's it's great. It sets it sets the entire tone and the perspective of the movie like up in the mm -hmm. first like few minutes. And it just it's it's so it drops you into S Scout's world so well as, as you as you start to get into it. Yeah. And it introduces because like the stuff she's playing with is all the stuff that like Boo Radley mm -hmm. had given them exactly. is what it is. So it's 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 going to come back in the end uh, at the end of the film when like she's like that su or that summer Boo gave us these few things. It's all the stuff she was playing with in the opening of the film. But yeah, I agree. It perfectly. I think the beginning as a whole from the opening title sequence that leads into the narration of the film mm -hmm. because I think. The narration, I don't know. There, there, there are definitely sequences like lifted from the novel. Yeah, but they're not fully from the novel. It's like I always feel like Makem was a tired old town was the is the first line of the novel. It's not. It's something else. <laughs> but just it, it feels like that would be the that would be the opening line of the movie of the of the of the of the uh, the book. But it's not. It is a line I think in the first page, but it's not the opener. So, but yeah, the narrator, Kim Stanley, a big theater actress who I think won a few Tonys or was nominated for a few Tonys and was like in, she was in the Broadway production of Picnic. And I think she was nominated for an Oscar for The Right Stuff. She was in The Right Stuff, apparently, in the 80s. Um, so, but a great voice for the narration of this film. I mean, the thing is, anything with Gregory Peck, like Gregory Peck, I think is amazing in this role <laughs> as Atticus Finch. Like he, he all, it's his speeches. Like his speeches are so, and it's like, is, is it Lee? Is it foot? Is it the direction? Is it Peck? There's just so much working 
together in this movie but he just has this warmth to him yeah that's what i was i was gonna say i think this is one of those those performances that is like equal parts gravitas and warmth where that i just think made this performance and this character iconic is that he is he is stern he is matter of fact but he also is patient and kind with the kids and it's 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 like a little too good to be true but we like it we like it that way which is why we don't like ghost of watchman but um (laughs) but uh yeah it's it's just that all that that all comes together and like you said the, the the kind of scripting for his monologues for his life lessons and and you know i think i think the the kind of beauty of of the writing and of the the film in this one is 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 the way that that scout is getting these kind of more metaphorical life lessons but she's also getting she's also seeing them applied to like actual real life around her um you know and which is obviously a ninth grade public school introduction to metaphors with like oh the the (laughs) you know who's who's the mockingbird um yeah and why is it a sin to kill them but uh it, yeah, it really yeah. does it works so well like you can't you can't shoot it down because it's it's you know so well known at this point like it's it's so well known because it's good yeah i mean his closing argument uh in the courthouse mm-hmm. i mean you can't help but talk about that that scene yeah. like in terms of in terms of pure literature of how it's written but then his performance like i i i I sent you one of his there's a few scripts or there's a few things online and you actually find peck's notes Mm -hmm. of uh of that that speech of like his because for those not much if you're not really much like kind of the, the the acting uh what goes in the prepping for an acting role a lot of writing does in your script of like kind of giving you notes of how, what this line means or, or how you should read this. And, and Peck's biggest note in that page of his like opener is like, slow down, give it weight. Mm -hmm. That's like his whole thing is like, slow it down. Don't rush it. Give it weight because that's, what's going to really impact the audience and, um, and the and the characters in, in the in the movie and the way Mulligan shoots it, I think it's kind of underrated of how he shoots it because he puts the camera in the jury box, mm-hmm. and so the audience is the jury. That's the whole idea, is the or the kind of train of thought with the shot is that it's the audience in the jury box, and it's a it's a one take thing. Mm-hmm. Like he he cuts a little bit at the end. They cut a little bit when they said like um about like all men are created equal and it cuts the balcony and then it kind of tell and it cuts the gym but it's like a seven minute scene and it's all in one shot pretty much and i read that like he nailed it in one single take and that's in the film like and that speech is hard yeah yeah I, <laughs> that speech is hard to do <laughs> we've we've covered kind of legal films in the past and yeah. uh, we talked about how important the the closing argument is to the legal film like it is your climax of of your legal film it doesn't matter you know if you're making a movie about the courtroom your your closing argument is going to be your climax and i think this is the peak of it if it's if it's not i'm sure there were it had been done before this movie but um i think all everyone that came after was trying to capture this lightning in a bottle 
what's another scene that you really love? One of one of my favorite mo- scenes in the movie is in just kind of this is the I love the way it's kind of handled with the the way we're seeing the film kind of through Scout's eyes is when the mob is kind of headed to the jail and and yep. um Atticus takes his gun and goes and like sits uh yeah s- sits watch over the jail and and it's presented as that, that Scout is like half asleep during it and and so it kind of it's it's the one thing that plays out like and 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 it's one of those things that gets richer as you revisit it like it's it's one of those things that plays out like that does go over Scout's head a little bit as to what exactly is going yeah. on. And once again, Peck is great in that scene, but uh, the way that it, that it does kind of play out, like she's, she's like, Oh, what's going on? Um, Peck in that scene too, it, the way it's done, it's like Peck, when they show up, Peck is not afraid mm-mm. or Atticus is not afraid. But when his kids show up, Peck's like demeanor just changes. Mm-hmm. Cause he now knows he does not have the upper hand in this scene and his kids are now in danger. But the, the change that comes over the crowd, you know, when, when scout kind of brings that innocence to the equation, I think it's, is part of the kind of thesis of the film is, is, you know, how the, the need for that type of childlike innocence again, and, and how quickly we can kind of get caught up in the, the heat of what's going on and, and forget, Mm-hmm. that viewpoint and that's that's what sets atticus apart is that he can kind of tap into that or he he can relate to to scout on that level and um and she she that she kind of like comes in and and, and saves everything is yeah I, I love that scene one thing too about this movie or it's it's probably it's the book as well um it's it's a coming of age tale but it's it's interesting because it's 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 Scout's perspective, but the movie also kind of makes it a little bit of Jim's perspective. Mm-hmm. And I feel like what happens is that Jim kind of loses his innocence in the movie more so than Scout yeah. does. Scout still kind of gains it or still has like, I think she, she matures because the ending narration kind of shows of how she's like, Oh, I now realize what Atticus meant uh, about this, but she's matured, but she still has that innocence kind of always within her. When Jim, because he's older, he really sees like what is happening in the town mm-hmm. with Tom Robinson, with Bob Yule. Like that's why he's like wants to make sure he's always going with with Atticus to Tom's family's like shack. Basically, mm-hmm. he wants to be there when these things happen because I think he realizes the weight of it finally. Um, and he, so yeah, he's the one, I mean, it's like he stands up or he basically tries to protect scout in the end when Bob Yule, spoiler tries to kill them. Mm-hmm. Um, he, he's, he's the one that kind of loses it at the end. Um, so it's, it does, it does a good job of kind of telling it in these two perspectives. One scene I really love, it's a kind of a collection of things. It's Miss Maudie talking to Jim after the court case mm-hmm. and telling her about, Atticus and how because Jim's Jim's whole thing is that it's established early on is that Jim thinks kind of low of Atticus right like that's kind of it's he's just like oh he won't do anything he won't play ball with the Methodists like that's kind of the he just doesn't think his father does anything good he's always scared of things and he begins to learn that his father is 
possibly one of the uh most uh, like unfearful people in the town in a way like i think or he's willing to take things on i guess is the thing um and i guess how much he like does for them as as a family and Madi kind of has that mode like i want you to, like listen to this and like if you learn anything from me learn that like your father is a is a better man than you might think he is uh and what he kind of takes on but it's a mixture with that and the shot of peck from behind when he gets the news about tom robinson the shot of him where it's that lingering where sheriff tate drives away and atticus is just like standing there on the road and you just it's a great back acting if that makes sense you just see the back of peck Mm -hmm. and you're just like he's like taking everything in and realizing this is this is over the other one i would i would shout out obviously is uh kind of the the whole sequence from the attempted murder to the kind of revealing of of boo radley the the way the way he's done in the corner is 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 so well shot And, and that's one of those things i i haven't revisited the book in a long time but i remember like the first time i read the book being like oh my god they shot it like just like i'm picturing it reading this book in terms of the southern mysticism or the mysticism in the movie it's really apparent in that sequence because Mulligan does something really interesting that I've never noticed until this one is that, and, and that this might not have been like to get this mysticism, but with Elmer Bernstein's score, it really adds this kind of fairy tale like quality to it. Um, it's when Boo is, is carrying Jim back home and scouts running home mm-hmm. is that he shoots it and then he overlays an image of trees. Mm-hmm. So there's two images. Yeah. So you see like these fading trees, like it's like looking through a, like a dream in a way. Mm-hmm. And it, it, it just has a really cool effect to it that I never noticed. I always thought it was just like, it was trees. But when you look at it, it's this like fading kind of like blending of these two images that creates this like, like airy like quality in a way to it that I, I didn't realize. Yeah. So onset life, the one big name that was involved in the production of the movie that does not really have an official technical credit on the film is Harper Lee herself. Apparently Pakula and Mulligan allowed her to be involved a great deal in the film. I think she also had like a percentage of the profits of the film as well. Originally the team planned on filming in Monroeville, Alabama, her hometown so many of the team, including Gregory Peck, would visit the town some. However, they soon realized the town had drastically changed since the 1930s. It's 30 years after the movie takes place, or the book takes place. Um, but one of the film's production designers, Henry Bumstead, was sent down to Monroeville to research what was still there. When he arrived, Lee was there to welcome him, and she became his tour guide on the trip, discussing with him the architectural designs he could use to properly design Makeham, Alabama. Pakula also asked Lee if she had any photographs of the period, and she gave them to production in order to help with the design. When writing to Pakula while in Alabama in November 1961, Bumstead said, Harper Lee was there to meet me when I arrived, and she is the most charming person. She insisted I call her Nell, Feel like I've known her for years. Little wonder she was able to write such a warm and successful novel. Monroeville is a beautiful town of about 2,500 inhabitants. It's small in size, but large in Southern character. I'm so happy you made it possible for me to research Stan before designing To Kill a Mockingbird. Believe me, it's a much more relaxed life than we live in Hollywood. 
he then goes on the letter and talks about all the details that Lee told him to add to the film. She said things like Mrs. Dubose house should be Victorian style with paint peeling off the, off the, the walls. Hmm. Um, and they should have, they should place big ice blocks on the courthouse steps for the courthouse scenes, which is in the movie. Cause you see them grabbing ice or water as they go mm-hmm. into the courthouse. And it's at the bottom of the steps. Since they decided to shoot on the Universal backlot instead of Alabama, Bumstead and the rest of the art department had to create a southern town from scratch. Bumstead and his co-art director, Alexander Coltzen, apparently had found out that an old neighborhood was being torn down the San Fernando Valley to make way for the freeway. They thought the houses were perfect for Maycomb because they looked like old Southern Depression era houses. So they're able to move like a dozen of the houses to the back lot. And that became the town of Maycomb that is used in the movie. Hmm. It, it, that This move ended up saving the production budget, uh, the, the, the production's budget, $100,000 is what it was. Uh, they still end up, they so that they, they wanted to actually recreate the interior of the Monroe, Monroeville Courthouse. And if you watch it and look at the pictures of the Monroeville Courthouse, the art, art department nails it. Like it looks... If you put it side by side, they look almost identical. They end up spending a little over $200,000 to recreate Makeham for the film or Alabama for for the film. Wow. Uh, When Lee arrived on set for shooting, she was shocked by how accurately they were able to recreate Depression era Southern Town in the middle of the Universal lot. Also, Lee was greatly impressed by Peck as Atticus. The first scene that Gregory Peck shot showed him returning home uh from his character's law office while his children like run to greet him it's kind of one of the first times you see atticus mm-hmm. uh when they go talk to miss dubose uh lee was on the set that day and peck noticed that she was like crying as they were filming and he went up to her and asked her why she was crying and she responded she responded oh you have a little pot belly just like my daddy <laughs> and and peck's like that's not a pot belly harper that's great acting <laughs> um but it seems the hardest part of filming came with the child actors. Yep. According to Philip Alford, who played Jim, he hated Mary Badham. Oh, no. Apparently, they they bickered and fought all the time. He believed that she would mouth his lines while they were shooting as a way to mock him. <laughs> uh, but if you watch the film, you can occasionally see her mouthing Peck's lines in a few scenes. So she just apparently learned the whole script is what it was. Uh, but Alford, Alford says the worst day... Of the, their arguments came when they were doing the tire rolling scene. He said he was so upset with her that day that he planned to kill her in that scene. Oh my god! He said he rolled the he, he rolled the tires so hard and he aimed it at like a grip truck or something off camera in hopes that she would hit it and it would hurt her. Uh, yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. Mulligan also realized that when the direct uh, when directing the kids that their later takes were the worst because they would get too tired and not able to concentrate. So he had to make sure that he got everything yeah. in the first or second take with them. Uh, in the end, the film would shoot from February 1962 to May of 1962. And Harper Lee was apparently on set for about a month of the filming. So that leads to the aftermath of the movie. Mm-hmm. It was finished up in May of 1962. It was released on Christmas Day, 1962, where it was met with overwhelmingly positive reviews from critics. The film was also a massive box office success for the time, grossing $13 million on a $2 million budget. Might not sound like a lot today, but in terms of 2021 dollars, 
it would have made $117 million against a $18 million budget. And since the film was released in peak award season, the film would go on to receive eight Oscar nominations in a fairly strong year for films. The film would win three awards on Oscar night, one for Best best Production Design, one for Best Adapted Screenplay by Horton Foote, and one for Best Leading Actor for Gregory Peck. Uh, Mary Badham would also be nominated but lose to Patty Duke for Hel- as Helen Keller in The Miracle Worker. Um, Horton Foote, however, was not in attendance for the Oscars that night. Foote did not expect to win because of what he'd been hearing from people, so he did not show up. Uh, When he won, Alan J. Pakula went up and accepted the award on his behalf. Foote would later be nominated for an Oscar again in 1983 for Tender Mercies. He made sure he attended that night, (laughs) uh, which was good because he also won an Oscar that night as well. Gregory Peck did not think he was going to win that night because he was up against kind of a very tight race of people. So here's what we had. We had Burt Lancaster, Birdman of Alcatraz. Okay. Marce- Marcella Mastriani for Divorce Italian Style. Okay. Jack Lemon for Days of Wine and Roses, which is <laughs> a great performance. And Peck thought Lemon would win for that role. And arguably one of the greatest performances of all time, Peter O'Toole as T.E. Lawrence in Lawrence of Arabia. Wow, that was a solid, solid, solid year. year. It's an amazing year. And it's like flip a coin. I think like I think Lawrence Arabia is the much better film is the, is the is like the master. They're both I think great films, but Lawrence Arabia is just a feat of filmmaking uh, on a whole other level by David Lane and Peter O'Toole is amazing. And it's like if Peck's not in this race, Peter O'Toole wins for sure. And Peter O'Toole never won an Oscar in his career. Um, so it's a tough race. It's a very mm-hmm. tough race for sure. Um, the night of the Oscars, Atticus Finch, at, or sorry, Atticus, Gregory Gregory Peck. Uh, had the pocket watch that Harper Lee gave him on set because Harper Lee gave him a pocket watch that her that her her father had, mm-hmm. and he took it with him. Or after the filming, she gave it to him, so he had it with him the night he won the Oscar when he accepted the Oscar. Last thing about the awards, uh, I don't know of this award. Apparently, this was a big thing. This might have been the last year for it. The Golden Globes had an award called Best Film Promoting International Understanding. What and to kill to kill a mockingbird one? <laughs> oh my god! That, and by the way, there were nominees. It wasn't like it was just like we're giving it this film. It was like here are three people, and you're just like, yeah, you're not you're, your message isn't as good. Um, however, within the coming decades, there would be some reassessment from some critics regarding the film, specifically when talking about the white savior trope that has kind of popped up in later decades. Two critics that we talk about a lot on the show, Roger Ebert and Pauline Kale, would give the film mixed reviews uh, because of this, this white savior trope. Kale said that the movie is part eerie Southern Gothic and part Hollywood self-congratulation for its enlightened racial attitudes. She believed that Peck won the Oscar during this time because it was during a time when the nation was fairly divided. When was it not, Pauline? When was it not? Um... <laughs> Uh, Ebert would say the film was about race, but would focus more on the white characters than the black characters, using them more as props as a way to talk about race. Mm. Uh, Andrew Saris, also for the Village Voice, not a fan of the movie either. So the main critics seems like haven't liked it in the past de- few decades. You know, people, people, we we talk a lot about Paul and Kale on here. Andrew Saris was a pretty harsh, oh yeah, pretty harsh critic. <laughs> yeah, probably more so. Probably more so. 
uh his andrew saris's big thing is that he was the big kind of prominent figure within the auteur theory for the american side like mm -hmm. he took what coyote cinema with the french did uh with that and kind of brought it to american audiences is what it was um but even with some critical reassessment the film would still sustain a popular legacy with audiences in 1995 the film was added to the national film registry by the library of congress um, and according to many of the lists released by the American Film Institute in the 2000s, it is still one of the most beloved American films of all time, ranking as the greatest courtroom drama of all time, the 25th greatest movie of all time, the second most inspirational American film of all time, and Gregory Peck as Atticus Finch was listed as the greatest cinematic hero of all time. Wow. Uh, and also, Elmer Bernstein's score was listed as the 17th greatest musical score of all time. Really? Yes. That's, that's what I don't... I've seen this movie a lot and I, I don't know that the score is like super familiar to me. I, I guess because I heard it so many times. I love it because it's he apparently because it's the piano, the like kind of like almost like one note, like one key kind of hitting every few times. Mm -hmm. He said he based it on he goes, what do kids do when they go to the piano for the first time? They just start pressing a, one key here or there. Yeah. And so he turned that into the melody of the score. That's really cool. So not long after the film's release, both Mary Badham and Philip Alford, Alford would quit acting while they were still young. Besides a brief appearance in a film in 2005, Badham's last acting performances were in 1966 with the This Property is Condemned, starring Robert Redford and Natalie Wood, which I've, we've talked about on the show before, uh, and the horror film, horror film Let's Kill Uncle, directed by William Castle. Uh, Alfred would star in a handful of TV episodes and TV films, but only star in one more film for Disney called Shenandoah. No, it wasn't Disney. Just a film. It was a Civil War movie with Jimmy Stewart called Shenandoah. Um, hmm. The child actor that was the most successful was John Migna, who played Dill. Migna would later appear in films like Hush Hush Sweet Charlotte, and I think was in The Godfather Part Two, but he was cut from the theatrical cut, but later added to the TV version. Uh, before passing away in 1995 at the age of 42 due to complications complications from AIDS. The thing that's carried over the most over the years is Gregory Peck's performance performance as Atticus Finch. He said that many people would approach him over the years to tell him how his performance impacted them, with some of them even telling him that they became a lawyer because of it. He would later say that it was his most favorite film that he worked on and also one of the easiest because it just everything clicked while making it. The film also created lifelong friendships for many of the people involved. Peck would be friends with Brock Peters, the actor who played Tom Robinson, uh, Mary Batham, who played uh, Scout, and Harper Lee herself. Batham uh, would say she always referred to, to to Gregory Peck as Atticus when he when she spoke to him, <laughs> and he would call her Scout. Um, Batham and Peters would also become friends until his death in 2005, and Peters was the person that read the eulogy at Gregory Peck's funeral in 2003. So very much like affected all of them. Uh, after Peck's death, uh, Harper Lee wrote in the DVD re-release that, that the years told me that Peck's secret. When he played Atticus Finch, he had played himself, and time has told, us, told all of us something more. When he played himself, he touched the world. So, moving on. What worked about this film? <laughs> uh, Peck. Peck, yeah. Well, and, and, you know, especially now hearing kind of behind the scenes, it's it's amazing the performances that those kids do yeah. give. <laughs> I, I know a lot of 
uh, ADs who are great with kids, directors who are great with kids, but I honestly don't know anyone who would be able to resolve one of your two child actors wanting to kill the other one. <laughs> it was crazy, yeah. And she get and she got an Oscar nomination for it. And I, I think she's the she might be the youngest person to get a Oscar nomination at that point because I think she was like nine years old, or at least in the best supporting actress category maybe at the time let's see yeah now it ended up being tatum o'neill later on but before until tatum o'neill and paper moon mary badham was the youngest to be nominated at 14 mm-hmm. years old so yeah peck i think works i think the performances work um i think the directing works i i think the production design works i think the way this movie's crafted is amazing the one thing i want to talk about that i think really works it's it's I think it's a great kind of way to tackle a book is I think Horton Foote's adaptation is really well done. Like he, I know they they cut some stuff out in the edit, but Foote smartly knows what subplots to cut. And he cuts a lot of subplots in this movie. This is one of those, this is one of those adaptations that it's like every, everything that needed to stay stayed and everything that could go, even if you read the book, and that those are the amazing like you know there's so many people who like read books and go see the movies and like well they left this out they left this out but like it's the people who can read a book and go this i can i can pull this out it's good it's really well written but i can build i can build the picture without that and the people who can do that really 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 well are are fair and few between and um, this this script does it incredibly where it, it, it you know it gets to the point it's that kind of thing where like you you watch the movie and you read the book and like it just it feels like such a natural adaptation you you even like forget that they did pull stuff out yeah it's like because like one big subplot like they have a whole subplot of like their aunt coming to live with them mm-hmm. and yeah. alexandria and that's all cut we don't need to add another character he really is able to compact a lot because the movie takes place over like two years mm-hmm. is the thing but it doesn't feel like it's taking place over two years because it like basically you start in the summer, you go a full year into the next summer and then it ends on like a year and a half, basically a year. It ends in, on like Halloween of like like a year and a half later, basically, from when they start the movie. So did anything not work? I mean, you know, a lot of the critics have have the right idea. Yes. Yeah. Obviously, for the time, mm-hmm. this was uh harper lee telling the story the best way she knew how which was the way that she viewed racism as a white woman um it's one of those things that that yes admittedly we would rather have a film that explored this through you know that allowed um african-american voices to to be heard more prominently Mm -hmm. and then someone to bring that message through film but for what lee presents i i think it's done well yeah i I think that's really that has hurt the film to some extent is not really the film itself but it's the perspectives and the the kind of context that's developed post like post uh the movie um it's like at this point in time the white savior trope wasn't really a thing in terms Mm -hmm. of like social consciousness and it felt like everything after this movie in terms of dealing with race was like we're gonna follow that kind of thing yeah Mm -hmm. um and because of that 
the white savior trope kind of became a thing uh based on people copying what they did in this movie um and so like because because it's like but also like is that the novel or is that the film another one that does this that actually handles a very similar issue that i think handles it a little bit better is if i watched this actually for the first time yesterday a movie called intruder in the dust and it came out in the late 1940, late 1940s it's based on a william faulkner novel and it's about a african-american man who is accused of killing a white man and a young teenage boy believes the african-american man is innocent and he gets his uncle who is a lawyer to try to defend the man and it takes place in oxford mississippi and it's the whole movie they're trying to prove this man's innocence uh this this african man man's innocence but the thing about his, his character is that he's not a, he's not a a poor man he actually owns a big patch of land in in mississippi because his like his ancestors were slaves and when their master or whatever died they got a portion of the land so he's like the only black man in the town that actually like owns land and has a farm and lives on it and so he's kind of like seen as this like quote unquote very proud man so like it's they make him a more uh complex and strong character in that movie mm-hmm. and it's just a kind of a different so it's an interesting way they they, they deal with similar themes i think to kill a mockingbird's a better movie but it is interesting seeing a very similar movie take place with a kind of a little bit of a different perspective where the african-american characters are more involved in the plot of the movie and it actually is shot in the south so it has this interesting feel to it that's different so um anyway one big thing i want to bring up that i think that that change something they changed from the book to the movie that makes it a little bit more cloudy in what it's trying to say and that's actually tom robinson's death Mm. because in the novel it actually happens like months later because tom is in prison and atticus is working on the the appeal um and they're prepping for it and they need to but they need to speed up time so they, ha- they have it happen the same night but right in the book and the movie it's that oh they tried to give him a warning shot and they accidentally shot him in the book it's very apparent they killed him because mm-hmm. i think the line is that the guard shot him 17 times in the back very different than yeah. what I missed. It was a warning shot that missed. So that like I, they could have found him. I, I feel like they. I mean, maybe it's also me in the modern day putting in context or putting something on it. But they could have made it look more like this thing was like meant to happen. Because Atticus, Atticus believes like it was an accident. But I think Atticus is smart enough to realize this was they killed this man. Right. And now we're here. And so that's the one thing that I don't think fully. They. I feel like they could have changed in the moment. So, alternate universe cast. Kyle People were up for this role. Jimmy Stewart was offered the role of Atticus Finch first, but he declined it because he believed the film would be too controversial. Hmm. I think someone also said he believed it was, quote unquote, too liberal. Oh, no. Jimmy Stewart, Jimmy Stewart was a Republican um, at that point in time. Uh, Mulligan and Pakula also wanted Spencer Tracy for the role but he could not do the film due to a scheduling conflict at that time. Someone who lobbied incredibly hard for the role of Atticus Finch was Rock Hudson. Rock Hudson really wanted to play the role and Pakula and Mulligan thought about it, but they believed they needed a bigger actor, bigger name for the role of Atticus because Rock Hudson was still kind of 
he was big, but not in the same way as a Jimmy Stewart or Spencer mm-hmm. Tracy yeah. or Peck. Uh, one other name, someone who auditioned for Tom Robinson, James Earl Jones auditioned for Tom Robinson. Wow. Film facts. A lot of these. I'll try to get through them. The film was shot on the Universal Studios lot. Can you guess what other movie was shot there? Oh, the Universal lot? Oh. On, on, the, on the set they use. On the set they use the courthouse. Uh, 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 Back to the Future. Back to the Future. The exterior of the courthouse is the same exterior for Back to the Future. So And so the ta- when they're running through the streets at night, that's mm-hmm. Hill Valley. That's that's the streets of Hill Valley. Um, the film was Robert Duvall's official screen debut as Boo Radley. Mm-hmm. He was cast after Horton Foote suggested him to Pakula and Mulligan because Foote had saw him in a production of one of his plays back in 1957, and Foote had always been incre- incredibly impressed by how talented Duvall was. And speaking of Duvall, apparently he stayed out of the sun for six weeks and dyed <laughs> his hair blonde in order to capture the look of the reclusive Boo Radley. Method. Method's coming in, baby. Um, Philip Alford, who played Jim, would say that he that they had to eat so much breakfast food during the scenes that he was not able to eat bacon or eggs for years because of it. <laughs> the, the reason they had to eat so much is that Alford... Uh, uh, Philip Alford said that Badham messed up in every take at the kitchen table. <laughs> they really did not like each yeah. other. <laughs> oh, man. Oh, man. While shooting Tom Robinson's testimony during the courtroom scene, apparently Brock Peters was not supposed to cry um, during it, but he did while they were shooting the scene. Peck said that he couldn't look him in the eyes because he began to choke up while doing the scene, so he had to look away from him. Uh, actress Ruth White, who played Mrs. DuBose, spent four hours every day in makeup for her scenes in the film, but if you notice, she's only in one scene. DuBose had a much larger role, like she did in the novel, and that was the initial plan, but Mulligan and Pakula realized that while they were editing the movie, that once it came to her scenes, the movie just stopped. Hmm. So, I think the original plotline was that, in the book, is that she's dying because of like morph and they say it's morphine addict addiction. Um, mm-hmm. and because Jim like messes up her plants at one point, her, her flower garden in the, in the book, um, yep. his punishment is to read to her every day. Yeah. And they cut that out. Um, filmmaker Walt Disney requested to have a private viewing of the film at his house. Apparently after seeing it, he said, he, he sadly said, that's one hell of a picture. That's the kind of film I wish I could make. Two more things. It doesn't deal with the film uh, directly, but deals with one of the actors. Mary Badham, did not know this, is actually the younger sister of film director John Badham, English director John Badham. Badham would later go on to direct such films as Saturday Night Fever and War Games. Okay. He, wow. he also directed some other fun but flawed films, Stakeout by Richard, starring Richard Dreyfuss and Emilio <laughs> Estevez, and The Hard Way starring Michael J. Fox and James Woods. Uh, the last fact... While Elmore Bernstein composed the score for the film, can you guess who played the piano for the score? Uh, someone, someone big. Liberace. No. <laughs> John Williams. Wow. I did not know that at all. Uh, all right, story questions. Do you have? Do you have a story question? What What is What is their future with with Boo Radley look like? You know, is he yeah, coming over? Yeah, I've always to, thought to, that too. Is he coming over well, well, family dinners? Well, I think she says she never saw him again after that. Oh. Like in the in the book. I think it's that they never saw each other again. Which is just like, okay. 
Uh-huh. Sounds like me and the neighbors I had growing up yeah. in Alabama. You saved your life once, and then you and then you yeah. just never saw them. Never again. see them again. Um, what happens to that Yule family? Because after Bob Yule gets killed, like I, like, I mean, if we're if we're are we counting Ghosts of the Watchmen as canon there, Thomas? Oh God, not in my mind, not in well, not I, in my head, canon. Well, I, I know Jim Jim does die at a young age is what mm-hmm. ends up happening because that's what happened to Harper Lee's brother. It's weird. Harper Lee and her sisters lived to all be in like their 80s, 90s. Her oldest sister lived to be like in her hundreds. Um, but her brother died when he was in his 30s. Very, very different. I mean, one question I had, and, and, and I know the answer, but I think it's something that like, I think from the outside in, what would you ask? Is like, is, is Atticus a good father? At the end of the day. Yeah, I mean, at, when I was a kid, I thought absolutely. Um, the older I get, the more I see that they, everyone's just doing the best that they can. But yeah, that's I, what I, it I feels do. like. Like, yeah. I, like I said, I think the the res- part of the reason that, that we look up to Atticus so much when we are kids and we like see this movie is, is the respect that he shows his kids. Mm-hmm. Um, the way that he treats his kids is like, you are people and you know i'm gonna i'm gonna sugarcoat some things for you but for the most part i'm gonna show you the respect i would expect you to show me and i'm gonna tell you what the world is like and he can be he can be come off as a little harsh sometimes he can come off as like a little cold sometimes but i think that's kind of the whole package is like he's this man who was a single father in a time when that was not you know yeah like fathers weren't supposed to have you know be that close with their kids unfortunately yeah Yeah. um and and so i think he's in his way he is like yeah he's he's doing the best he can but but in in his unique way which is what i think makes him such an interesting character is is that he does treat them like like little adults but also you would think that would come off as like exceptionally cold, but, but it, there's also yeah. a warmth to it. Yeah. There's the scene that I always think about of where, you know, he's a good father. It's when boo brings Jim back to the house. And mm. I don't know why I always, but I always think about how Gregory Peck yells scout in this scene. It's a scout and then scout. Like it's like, it's like just mm-hmm. like complete, like either desperation or worry in his voice where the first thing that he sees when, when Jim is being carried in is that, oh, my God, where's my daughter? Mm-hmm. And he runs outside to go find her. And she's running up when he's when he's when he comes out and he picks her up. And it is that moment, too, where where I, I think I think in the movie, I also says too I think in the stories that Atticus, I think, maybe learns how to be a better father. That's kind of like a, like a background story in a way, because mm-hmm. that's the whole thing at the end with the narration of like Atticus would stay up all night uh or when or he and he would be there when jim woke up in the morning type thing is that he he was a good father and he just did again again it's 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 all their perspectives of breaking the facade of atticus finch in their Mm -hmm. eyes that he is just a he is their dad he is their father but they don't realize the history that he has and kind of how much he truly cares for them so it's and again i I agree it's it's he's he's lost a wife and he has to raise these two kids on his own uh, well with calpurnia i think it can't be understated how much calpurnia is essentially yeah. a uh, a part of the parenting that I, I don't like i don't want to delve too deep because i know that there are answers out there in a, in a whole other book i just don't want to i just don't want them i refuse them 
I refuse them. Okay, fine. Here's my thing about here's here's what I'll say about go set a watch. Is <laughs> <laughs> anyone who has been raised in the South is all too aware. Um, some of our elders tend to get a little bit more conservative as they get older, and yeah. it's and it's a very sad thing to see sometimes. <laughs> yes, if it can take them in a darker direction, and so like yeah. that's a real thing many of us have experienced. I didn't need. <laughs> I didn't need a book to tell me that that happens. Like yeah. I've, I've lived it. So <laughs> I have lived it. That's fair. All right. Awards. The Beatrice Strait award actor, actress, limited scenes that kills. I feel like we haven't done these in a while. Um, cause that whole month of, of, of directors. So yeah, Beatrice Strait award actor, actress with limited scenes that kills it. Who do you have? I'm, I'm going with Mr. Method himself. I think you have to go Robert Duvall. I think it's Robert Duvall. Yeah, I think I think Robert Duvall, like still to this day, it's like you you can't forget Boo Radley in the two the two or three scenes he's in. It's really just like one sequence he's in. Uh, yeah, and also and, zero and lines spoken, like zero lines yeah. spoken. But it's also it's it's that's that's a that's a tough role because yeah he is yeah. He, as a character he's so woven into the story as well as the book i mean i think that's that's the person you come out of these when you read the book for the first time you come out thinking like atticus and boo radley like those are the two characters that like stick in your head and and yeah so to kind of take that on and become the personification of this like mysterious next door figure is that's, yeah. a, that's a huge undertaking for someone who is you know barely going to be in it that's a, that's a lot of weight for for the scenes that he has i agree with you i'll, I'll we'll go to robert duvall uh we, we'll have to play a scene of him not speaking uh <laughs> on the clips no um i will say this one i want to throw out there i do love kim stanley as a narrator mm. i think she just has a yeah. perfect voice for this um so i like her as well but i, I duvall i think I agree. I think Duvall is the one that kind of rem that gets it, but I do think of Kim Stanley as, as kind of this unsung hero who carries us through uh, this story. All right. Annie Potts X Factor Award, supporting actor, actress that is the most memorable. I mean, the easy one is, is Mary Badham as Scout, but I feel like Scout is more of a lead, even though mm -hmm. that Oscars give her supporting uh, uh, actress. Yeah. I mean, I really like Rosemary Murphy as Miss Maudie. And I don't know if she counts as supporting or if she counts more as Beatrice Strait because she's not in there that much. But I really like her as she Ms. is Mai. great. Yeah, yeah, she I'll is. She up. is great because I think she's 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 in a few and she's kind of there throughout in the background. Like that's that's the one thing I wish I wish we got more of her in the movie. Mm -hmm. I wish we got her. And I, mean, I think it's Brock Peters as Tom Robinson is also great. Like that's yeah. the thing is that he is a guy that he only really has one scene he's in a lot of scenes but he only has like one big scene and i think he he nails it and i also like i just you kind of get his little line uh at the jail cell when when atticus is like when atticus is like there he kind of like comes out of the dark and says like are they gone um so i think i think it's a toss-up of I'm, I'm gonna say brock peters I think Brock Peters, I remember the most. Yeah, I'll back that. But, but Rosemary Murphy is, is a close second for me. But Brock Peters. Easy one. Gene Hackman MVP award. Person who carries the movie director, actor, etc. Yeah, I, I, it's Gregory Peck. Yeah, Gregory Peck hands down. There's not much to say. Is that Gregory Peck is the thing that I think has carried on the most from this movie's in this movie's legacy 
is you think of Gregory Peck as Agus Finch and is a role that has become so synonymous with him is that when you think Gregory Peck, at least because where we're from, when I think of Gregory Peck, the first thing that will always go to my mind is to kill a mockingbird and like mm-hmm. nothing else. Yeah. Like it's one of those roles where like, if he would have done it much earlier in his career, he would have been more typecast in this type of role, but because it was such, so, so later in his career, he was able to like, it was, it was much easier for him to do final questions. If this movie was remade today, who do you cast? Oh man. Well, you know, I really, I really wish I had seen the, the Broadway version. I don't know that Jeff Daniels would have been my first pick, but I, I, I always, I did always want to see him do it. Yeah. Um, I think you got to go a little bit younger is the thing. Yeah. Let's see. How old was, how old was Gregory Peck during this? Uh, Peck was 46. Jeff Daniels is no offense. Jeff, you're 66. Jeff Daniels is 66. Okay. Here's, here's my question. Yeah. What would a Matthew McConaughey Atticus Finch look like? I'm not saying it's, I'm not saying that's the choice. Yeah. I don't know. I'm just, I'm just curious. I don't know maybe I, I i feel like i feel like i feel like it would the thing about it is I mean, maybe i'm wrong I, I i'm not saying mcconaughey is a is a loud character loud person i don't know if he has the right like quiet strength mm-hmm. as much as peck does does that make sense yeah yeah no, like I, I, he, I he's that. done some stuff before i haven't seen him do it when he in his in his like later years is what i mean mm. all right what about <laughs> what about chris pine that was also my pick by the way thomas <laughs> i was like i really want to say it but i feel like I don't, i'm gonna look bad is that is that his oscar did we just find him as I, oscar I, I think maybe I, that was so yeah he was he was my pick as well I thought he'd do it. Maybe we maybe we should just we should do a, a podcast on Chris Pine, the Pine Podcast, and we're just talking about Chris <laughs> Pine movies. I don't know. Um, um, all right, cool. I yeah, I'll start. Great. I'll start prepping the uh, just my luck episode. <laughs> Here's a question. Mm-hmm. Well, I think I think it's different. You you would have to cast kids in this movie, but like I know like Sorkin cast all like adults in the kid roles of To Kill a Mockingbird um you can't do that with a movie that would be odd <laughs> um I, I would like to think of like who would play a miss Maddy is the thing is it brie larson would brie larson be uh <laughs> miss Maddy? she did she play she played kind of a uh, a role of some kind in the uh julianne moore julianne moore would be a great miss Maddy, right I I i'm here? not gonna say no to julianne moore or <laughs> <in> anything <laughs> I feel like she would be pretty good. <laughs> Next question. Does this film fit with any other genres besides the Southern film genre? Yeah. I mean, it's, I think it's definitely like a court, a courtroom drama. Um, yeah. You know, like we said, I think, I think if your movie, if the, your, your climax of your movie is a, is a closing argument, no matter what runtime the rest, you know, is spent within a courtroom for the rest of the movie, you are a courtroom drama. <laughs> like, yeah. I don't disagree. I mean, it, it, yeah, even though it's not the climax fully of the movie, but yes, I do think uh, it is the, emo- the emotional climax. The emotional the climax. Is the, yeah. the action climax. I agree um, on that. I think it's also, yeah, it's definitely a coming of age film for sure. Coming of age film for sure. Yes. One of, one of the classics. 
that's the thing it's like every every genre this movie is in it's like a touchstone for it, it, yeah, <laughs> it is genre. i agree completely uh, kind of on the mount rushmore of, of a lot of the genres that it is is a part of so how does this film fit within the southern film genre um it's i think i definitely think it's on like mount rushmore yeah uh like we've said this is this is something up there with with forrest gump that i think is just like pumped into your blood when you're when you're a kid um between you know being assigned a kid in the south yes yeah between being assigned reading it to yeah. you know watching it if you have you know once you finish it they put it on in school and like you said yeah. plays going on about it like atticus finch is an icon from all yeah. the way down to his seersucker suit so it's 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 iconic as far as the um as far as the genre goes and as far as things that we talked about i think part of the reason that that kind of the john grisham like southern subcategory of uh legal courtroom dramas is because the courtroom and this movie is an excellent example of it the courtroom does kind of present this place where truths are laid bare and if we want to get real deep into it, it's maybe the only place in, in, within the South when you're compelled by by God to to tell the truth. So, so the whole like being proper and keeping things, keeping your Southern family secrets, is comes into clash with with the deep seated Christianity of the South in the courtroom, and so you have to yeah. lay everything out. But yeah. Um, but yeah, I think that's that's part of the reason why that that genre and the southern genre kind of mesh so well together as it represents this place where and it, it sets you up for these like big revelations because so much of the south is about keeping things under the surface and the and the courtroom represents this place where where the truth will will be found the truth will come out yeah. and and so it's 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 kind of like these two spaces that are in opposition to each other but then that's why it becomes this like the subject of gossip and everybody's yeah. packed into the courtroom because it's it's that that's what we're all about in the south gossip for sure but um but yeah i think this movie represents kind of the 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 peak of or at least the early peak kind of setting the standard for southern yeah. film for at least at this point of hollywood how people were trying to address racism at the time um southern courtroom dramas all of that comes into play here and is extremely influential we're going to see throughout the rest of this this genre yeah no i agree completely it, it, it really does kind of all the things we discussed early on are very apparent in the movie from the repression in several ways and kind of the underlying racial tensions within this town i think one thing too you kind of talked about this like storytelling aspect i think that's very apparent in this movie is like is the story being told of a character looking back on their life of some point and how that that storytelling almost like trait is apparent in southerners mm. it's like something the people are kind of given um so yeah that's all it all kind of like fits it checks all the boxes of what a southern film and, and again it kind of it kind of like walks that line of southern gothic in terms of just what it covers and how it's shot because it's it's shot beautifully i don't know if i said that enough but shot beautifully with the black and white cinematography um so yeah it very much fits in nicely within this southern film genre and kind of a good one to start the month off with to kind of give mm -hmm. everyone a sense of what we're looking at when looking at this month yeah yeah so yeah, so that's this week. We finished up to kill a mockingbird. Thomas, what what are we talking about next week? 
uh, next week we're going to be discussing a work from someone who uh, I think is is closely tied to the southern genres just about anyone can get and that's Tennessee Williams and um, we're going to be tackling uh, Cattle on a Hot Tin Roof starring Elizabeth Taylor, Paul Newman and Burl Ives which I have to say this oh, was Burl Ives. when I was I don't remember how old the, I was the first time I saw Cattle on a Hot Tin Roof but it was my introduction to Burl Ives outside of being the snowman and <laughs> and Rudolph the Red Nose Strange there, and it is a very, very different performance. I will tell you that. I I've never seen the movie, so I'm excited to watch it for next week. Um, so you guys all know that. So go go watch it if you can before uh before you uh before we discuss it. And the, I guess you can probably rent it on Amazon. To Kill a Mockingbird not available to stream anywhere right now, but you can you can rent it on Prime or wherever your movie's at. Um, so yeah, so that's this week. Next week, count on Hot Tin Roof. It's going to be a fun month of Southern films. That's all we have for you today. Make sure you subscribe to the Nation Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever your podcast. Uh, and if you haven't already, make sure you write us a review on whatever platform you listen to the show on. Yeah, guys, any, uh, any feedback we can get from you not only helps us kind of build out the future of the show, but like I, I say every week, it boosts our visibility. You know, um, any kind any way you can engage with us on social media. Brandon's been posting uh, kind of polls recently to go along with the show to see where people are at, just kind of like with the movies we talked about and who's seen what and um, how popular certain movies we're discussing. So any way you can engage from leaving comments on iTunes to following us on social media and, and just interacting with us, anything you can do, you know how the internet works. The more you <laughs> interact with us, the more other people are going to see it and that helps uh, raise our audience. Also, shout out to our international audiences <laughs> shout out to ireland we see you india Killing we it. see you india we see you india yeah love love being there we're doing it. great britain a lot of great places uh usa step it up that's all i gotta say <laughs> india and, india and ireland kicking your ass right now mm-hmm. um we still love you we still love you america um so guys yeah make sure you do all of that make sure you as you said follow us on social media facebook twitter and instagram Thomas, as always, thank you for joining me. Thank you for having me. And thank you all for listening. We hope you listen to more episodes soon. Bye.